You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lyric, for reading that for us. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's so good to be with you all this evening. I just texted Mike and Sydney that I knew that we were going to say goodbye to them, but I don't think I was prepared emotionally to just get wrecked uh, before I had to preach this sermon. So give me a second as we get into this. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've got a lot to do. As you just heard uh, Lyric read, uh, this is packed with deep and rich theology. Uh, We've been working through Colossians, a lot to do tonight, so let's just go for it. Uh, When the gospel of King Jesus arrived in the Turkish city of Colossae, uh, the news report was like a bombshell. It was like a tidal wave of a newly created world order. That This news would have meant that there would be absolutely no going back for those who properly understood it. So Paul was concerned He was concerned that this cosmic hinge of history might just become like a a 9-11 event in the lives of these Colossians. That was, you know, for us who have experienced it, uh, that was something big for sure that brought several months, even a year's worth of big life changes and expectations. It might have even permanently changed the way that we viewed the world. But really and slowly, it kind of became an event in the past that has zero bearing on the practical outworkings of my life today. So Paul, uh, concerned that the, be- the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus uh, was becoming something like that, an event where we all just um, merely remember where we were when we heard the news, uh, but then we moved on in our lives. No, Paul wanted to make sure that they, the Colossians understood this news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Paul doesn't want the Colossians to miss that or underestimate the person and the work of Jesus. And so that's how we're going to think through Colossians 2, 6 through 15 tonight in two halves. The, the person and work of Jesus uh, brings, albeit slow, but nevertheless total transformation in the universe and the lives of his, of his people. So in verses 6 through 10, we'll think of the supreme identity of Jesus. And then in verses 11 through 15, the supreme work of Jesus. Uh, we got a lot to do, so let's just go for it. First of all, the supreme identity of Jesus. Paul says, beginning in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So picking up right where he's been going through the first chapter and a half, Paul is saying that coming to faith in Christ isn't some just some spiritual experience that one has or encounters like we modern Americans usually mean when we use this phrase to receive Christ. Uh, like last week, uh, where we just imagine this to be the moment that we uh, once in my life experienced some spiritual tingles. But as you can see, receiving Christ, it, it's absolutely uh, biblical language. It appears a handful of times across the New Testament, Christ in us. But far more than just like asking Jesus into your heart, the overwhelming greater emphasis in the New Testament writers, including these verses that we're looking at here tonight, more than Christ in us is us being in Christ, our union with Christ, even in these two verses, verses six and seven, receive him appears once, but being in him appears twice. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him. So Christ in me 
And I in Christ, my union with Christ is not merely a spiritual encounter, but a a transference of my entire personhood, of my entire identity of from primarily being in and of myself to now being by faith through his welcoming grace to being in and of Christ. Just think of how Paul thought through that in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in, Christ, in, the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Receiving Christ here means walking in Christ Jesus. And that means that you've come to the fork in the road moment in your life and are now out of persevering loyalty to Christ, continuing to follow him. Receiving the news that Christ Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not elected officials, not athletes, Not epidemiologists, but a real person in space and time. The carpenter rabbi who was executed on the cross, that that person is the Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he is Lord, the king and ruler of all. This is a massive news report to hear, to process, and then receive. As you have received this news of who he is, of his kingdom, Now continue to walk in it. Walk in that news. Live in it. And this totally continues where we were last week. Not just entering the front door of the gospel, but living in the house. Not just getting on the on-ramp and then just quickly exiting the highway, but driving on the highway now for good. The highway of the gospel. And how did you receive this gospel? How did you receive this news of Christ Jesus as Lord? Well, desperately, hungrily, in great need, You understood yourself to be in opposition to the king, in need of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Well, in the same way that you received Christ, so now walk in him. Not in pride, not in presumption, not in a shrugging indifference, but desperately, hungrily, in great need. And in your need, the grace and kindness of God will root, will build, will establish you in faith. He will hold you fast. But as we've a couple times thought through in this in the short little book of Jude, uh, there is the keeping love of God in that letter. It is God's work. But Jude also says, keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, keep yourself in the keeping love of God. The Christian life isn't just a life of like lounging on an inner tube on the lazy river of life with like a Mai Tai in hand or something. No, it's not something that just gets passively done to us, but that involves, it requires concerted participation by faith, which is exactly what Paul is getting after here. Walk in the good news. Walk in the gospel of Jesus in the exact same way that you received it, just as you were taught. Don't depart From the saving doctrine of God, delivered and handed down once and for all in his word and by the apostles. Keep going. Walk in it just as you were taught. Because check it, verse 8. There are a whole bunch of competing teachings out there about Jesus. There are a whole bunch of competing teachings out there about access to God. About having and experiencing a spiritual life. And Paul says, stay rooted. Stay built. Stay established then in what you have been taught like a rooted palm tree in a hurricane, like an established building engineered to withstand an earthquake. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, Paul here isn't opposed to the pursuit of 
philosophy as we typically mean it, the pursuit of thought and wisdom. He's not saying never, ever, as you're a freshman at UNM, do not, whatever you do, if you're a Christian, do not take a philosophy class. That's not what he's saying. Uh, but he is opposed to the kind of philosophy that is empty, that is hollow, that is deceptive, like a house that looks fantastic on the outside, but is in, but on the inside is hollow. The materials that were used were cheap and were quickly, and the house was quickly made so that six months later after you've bought it, it's completely falling apart. The kind of philosophy that Paul is warning about here um, is the kind of philosophy that comes from human origin, from tradition. We'll see next week more specifically about what these traditions are. Maybe a word that we might better use here for philosophy is that just of empty religion, religion that is empty, that is deceptive according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Again, more on this next week. Uh, Paul uses elemental spirits uh, in more detail next week and as we get through in chapter 2. That's a jarring phrase to our modern ears. So we'll spend some more time in thinking through what exactly he's meaning there next week. But Paul understands dangerous philosophies, deceptive traditions. Uh, He understands them not to just be equally valid means of human understanding. Not all philosophy is created equal. He understands these philosophies, these teachings, these traditions to be deceptive teachings that have actual spiritual origins, origins that have real and effective power in influencing the world, influencing us in turning from the gospel as we were taught, from keeping ourselves in the keeping love of God. For while the gospel of Jesus, we saw in chapter 1, verse 13, delivers and redeems his people from slavery, he give, the gospel brings freedom, the competing teachings will inevitably, here in chapter 2, verse 8, they will take you captive. They will return you back to captivity, return you right back to where you started, to a turning in on the self. As you received him, as the gravitational center of the universe, so now walk in him as the gravitational center of the universe, avoiding those practices and systems of thought and those traditions that begin to push out Christ. Why? Well, verse 9, For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Compared to those other spiritual beings out there, Jesus is supreme. The fullness or the full measure of deity which dwells in a human body. The math doesn't add up here, but Jesus is 100% God, 100% human. The mystery and glory of what we understand as the incarnation, God made flesh. So Paul is saying, remember, don't forget what I already reminded you of in chapter one, that all things were created through him and for him and in him, all things hold together. This ain't no spiritual elevated being. This ain't no one of those many competing spiritual systems or religions out there. This is Christ Jesus, the Lord, who is the fullness of deity. And as the fullness of deity and the gravitational center of the universe and of your small life, what now happens with that fullness? Well, verse 10, and you have been filled in him. His fullness has filled you. He has brought you from freedom to slavery. He has brought you from death to life. He has filled you with the spirit. Do not forget as you have received him, so walk in him. Paul's likely been hearing that the Colossians have been 
tempted towards minimizing or marginalizing Jesus. And Paul doesn't have anything to gain here necessarily, personally, to remind them of the truth of Christ. These aren't his people. He didn't plant this church. His personal reputation might not be on the line with them and their doctrinal belief, but they are his family. He's called them his brothers. And so just as if you were to hear from afar that a sibling, a a cousin, a child, a family member is beginning to walk down a path that you know will end badly, you want to, in love, like last week, give a course correction toward joy in Christ These Colossians had all the fullness that humans could have ever hoped for. Still in this age, experiencing loss, anxiety, and death, still sinfully inclined toward former idols, but still lives of fullness, lives of knowing God. One scholar says that the boasting Corinthians in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they faced the the danger of becoming puffed up in their belief that they had already arrived in Christ. Paul tried to show them that they were full of themselves instead of full of Christ. But here the opposite was true for the Colossians. They apparently were more in danger of not being puffed up, but of being deflated. Paul is beginning to tell these Colossians, Jesus is not just the starting point towards a spiritual life, that then you need to go on and continue in the hunt to find fullness. Remember last week with, with Aladdin and the Cave of Wonders. Like Jesus isn't like the scarab, that, that key that unlocks the path toward ultimate spiritual meaning and ultimate treasure and filling. No, Jesus is the treasure. And Paul is reminding them, you have been filled in him. You no longer need to find other philosophies or traditions. In him is the depth of philosophy and reflection that is infinite. You no longer need to search for heightened experience or nicer things. In him is the fullness of experience, is the fullness of joy. But what if, what if we're not finding this fullness of life? What if we're hearing this, we're reading Colossians 2 and just finding ourselves to not be in experiencing uh, this kind of full life that Paul is describing? Well, two things. First, Paul, Jesus, and the other New Testament writers have not promised a carefree, always awesomely happy life. They have promised a life that is anchored in joy. We are still weak. We are still prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And anchored joy doesn't just come in a lightning zap moment or some religious spiritual pill that we take. No, anchored joy The fullness of life often only comes through suffering. Rooted in joyful contentment in Christ comes through decades of enjoying Christ. This is why I was so appreciative of what Sidney said. Just of the time in which they have grown in their love and enjoyment of Christ through steadfastness. It's not just we we want as Americans, we want to be microwaved into uh, the fullness of joy. And this is not the way that God has promised it. It comes over a lifetime. And related, and then secondly, to go back to our deflating image, like no one blames the helium when a balloon isn't holding the air. Right? It's not the helium's fault, especially when like that balloon has arms and it like uh, starts intentionally poking holes in itself. 
Keep yourself in the keeping love of God. What are the ways in which you keep sabotaging your joy in the Lord with just more holes? Indifference or just the pursuit of entertainment. Quick and immediate pleasure that can be so distracting from the joy of Christ. What are the holes that need attention and care in our lives? What are the holes that need uh, patching so that we might be more rooted and built and established by God? A John Owen quote that we will often throw around around here, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Indifference is deadly. Indifference is a self-circuiting of the full joy that Christ has come to give us and to fill us with. Okay, so this is the supreme identity of Jesus. He is the fullness of deity. He is the first and the last. He is Christ the Lord. Receiving him as Lord of all is to receive the slow transformation of the fullness of life. And just in case we were still tempted to minimize the person and kingdom of Jesus, how he transforms every part of our life. Now, secondly, Paul wants to hammer home what Jesus has come to do. So not, not just the supreme person of Jesus, but the supreme work of Jesus. No bones about it. Verses 11 through 15 is a confusing paragraph. I mean, we're going along just fine. Uh, we're totally digging on this receiving Christ and being filled by him. And then like, bam, where in the world did circumcision come from? Like this is seemingly completely out of left field. Well, Paul is just continuing his train of thought that who Jesus is, the fully divine king of heaven and earth has filled and completed the work of salvation once and for all for his people. So now Paul starts in on the things that he's hearing the Colossian Christians are being tempted toward adding on to or replacing Jesus with. He's going to address circumcision in the same way that next week we'll see him address other Jewish festivals and the Sabbath. It takes some speculation, but it's likely that some influential voices from the Jewish population around Colossae were coming in and teaching uh, Jesus as the cave of wonders scarab. Jesus certainly is a fine and good key to knowing God, a doorway to uh, beginning your spiritual life and to being identified with his people, especially for you Gentiles who, remember, Chapter 1, verse 21, we're completely alienated, separated from God. And so Jesus is a wonderful doorway into the past. For you Gentiles especially, to go back into time and to be put yourself right alongside Abraham and Moses and David, to benefit alongside them and to benefit from the covenant promises to and through Israel. So begin to... Now Gentiles begin to take on Jesus as the doorway, but then take on uh, many of these Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God, traditions and customs and norms. But remember, for Paul, the kingdom of Christ is a new beginning. It is a way into a new and future age. The cross of Christ is the hinge over which the page of redemptive history turns, not a doorway into the past. But what is going on here with circumcision? Uh, Old Testament Israel remembered their miraculous origin through circumcision. Abraham's virility is claimed for God's service in Genesis 17 toward the promise of a son. The elderly Abraham and Sarah, they are given a miraculous child, Isaac. And ever hence, Jewish males would now live into that reality of remembering the promise of Abraham's faith compared to 
the sexual violence that immediately follows Abraham's circumcision in Genesis 17. In Genesis 18, Sodom, the world, uses its sexuality detached from promise, detached from man and woman, detached from fruitfulness. But the Old Testament ethnic family of God is inherently ordered toward the raising of a family through the physical birth of children. Now, while our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would say to that, and so it continues today, they would argue through Jesus has, though Jesus has brought a new covenant, we are still under the same larger umbrella covenant of grace, grace through faith, just the same as Abraham. And just, and so just as Isaac circumcised both of his sons, Jacob and Esau, not as a marker of salvation, but of belonging to the covenant people of God. Christians ought to baptize our infants as well as an external marker, not necessarily of salvation, but of belonging, of receiving the blessing of belonging to the family of God. And this is a biblically coherent argument. And we see the the connection between circumcision and baptism right here in Colossians 2. And do not easily dismiss it. Not just Colossians 2, but there are many other places to build this kind of theology. Sharper theologians than you and I hold to this form of covenant theology, like Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung, John Calvin, somebody I've already quoted tonight, John Owen, would all hold to this kind of uh, reformed covenant theology. And I have heard uh, Captain Baptist himself, Mark Dever, I've heard him say that unless you have been tempted to become a Presbyterian, you actually don't understand reformed covenant theology. I got close once uh, after seminary. But while there is so much continuity between Old and New Covenant, as Baptists, we would see more sharp and distinct discontinuity, where the emphasis is less on the building of the family through a physical first birth and more on the building of the church through a spiritual second birth. Whereas a Presbyterian would see Paul talk about these things as shadows, as he does next week, and we'll see next week in verse 17. As he, a Presbyterian would see those things and say, see, these are a continuation of the same thing. Circumcision to baptism. They are intrinsically connected. As a Baptist, we would say, yes, but there is distinction and difference between a tree and its shadow. They have similar characteristics. And they are, they, we can see that they are connected in some way, but they are fundamentally different in substance. There is distinction between the substance and the shadow. And so Paul is saying in verse 11 that the new covenant circumcision of all God's people, male and female now, the marker of covenant entry is not one something that is, is not one that, uh, that happens physically like circumcision was, but it happens spiritually. Now, we should never look for one verse out of context to act as like a proof text verse that like cements our position. But Colossians 2.12 is about as close to that as we can get uh, to help me in my Baptist theology. And by the way, when I say Baptist here, I'm not meaning Southern Baptist. I'm meaning uh, any theological system in which we do not baptize our infants. So even if you would not call yourself Southern Baptist, but you do not baptize your, your babies, you are a Baptist. But that's beside the point. Colossians 2.12, though, is about as close to a proof text as, as I think we can find here, where Paul says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Infants of Christian parents 
however many blessings that they have access to that they wouldn't have had otherwise if they had had non-Christian parents. That is true. Infants of Christian parents, nevertheless, are not buried with Christ, as Paul is describing here. Now, I'm not talking about the difference between baptism by immersion or baptism by sprinkling, though I do find it interesting that we certainly don't just throw a handful of dirt on the face of our dead people. Uh, We bury them completely, and I think that's what's going on here in baptism as well. But that's beside the point as well. In Paul's theology, dying with Christ, being buried with him, is a spiritual reality in which the old man, the old man bound and captive to sin, dies. And a new life, the new man, is recreated in his place. More on that in chapter 3. And so it seems as though if, according to Paul, baptism identifies someone with their spiritual death and burial, as we see here in verse 12, if we baptize our infants, we are baptizing them many years before they are actually dead. We are burying someone before they die. And then, of course, the next clause in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. We are buried with him in faith and we are also raised with him in faith. In baptism, you are raised with him, the recreated new man through faith. For whatever connection baptism has to circumcision and the, the faith of Jewish parents, this new covenant external marker is wound up way more tightly to the faith of the actual new person, identifying not just with the family, the parents, but a wider and universal people from all nations. And so if baptism is an entryway into the covenant people of God through your death and resurrection, by faith in Christ, then this is why perhaps you've heard us say that if you were baptized as an infant, we don't think you need to get rebaptized. We just think you need to get baptized. However meaningful that ceremony was for your church and family, it wasn't baptism. Humbly, uh, you just happened to get wet publicly in front of some people. You were not buried and raised through faith in Christ. And so again, what does this have to do with anything before it in Colossians 2? Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he has done. Jesus has done it all. Nothing more is needed to be at peace with God and in covenant with his people. By grace through faith, you are united to him. And you have proclaimed that union with him publicly by baptism. No additional physical ceremonies, no additional religious observances or law keeping, no spiritual resume building. None of it is needed. Christ has accomplished all and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he goes on to say in verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This word record of debt, it only appears here in Colossians. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. But using outside sources, we can guess that this is what Paul is talking about when he, that record of debt is a really good translation. It's basically an IOU, an IOU of uh, some, something, something that you've borrowed for somebody, but that you owe them $250,000. So Ferrari might want to hold on to that one. 
But we humans, we live our lives fully and openly before God in his sight. Nothing is hidden from God. There is a standard of living in which God requires to love him and to love others perfectly. Some folks are more kind, are more selfless than others, but we all find ourselves in a condition of separation from God. Of at our deepest level, our most human level of living for the self, of opposition to the God who has made us. And so no one is righteous. No, not one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and we stand with legal demands, screaming accusations against us. We sit at the defendant's table, guilty as charged with an infinite record of debt. But then enters the lawyer. John calls him Christ, our advocate, our legal advocate in 1 John 2, who argues for justice, not on the grounds of the defendant's righteousness, but on the grounds of his own, who has lived and died to bring forgiveness of our trespasses, of a canceling, the screaming accusations of the record of debt. The accusations that, you know, she just doesn't love God enough. He doesn't read the Bible enough or with enough discipline. The accusations that she is too fearful or anxious to be useful, or he is too sinful or weak to be loved setting all of those accusations aside and nailing them to the cross. We do not need to recreate this moment of nailing our sins and our accusations to the cross like once a year at a summer camp. But by the way, if you ever did that at a summer camp, this is where it comes from. Uh, Colossians 2, he has canceled the record of debt by nailing our sin, nailing our um, accusations to the cross. But we don't need to recreate these moments. It has happened once and for all at the Mount of the Skull, and it is finished. Buried, dead, and raised to new life by faith in Christ. This is the filling of Christ. It roots, it grounds, it builds, it establishes, it preserves in overflowing, abounding thanksgiving. As you received him, now walk in him. I got too long-winded tonight, so I didn't even get to this uh, disarming the rulers bit. I'm going to hold that off uh, till next week. We'll pick up right where we left off next week, but let me close with this. I, w- I was really tempted to just read the entire song of what we already sang tonight, but just listen again to the, the middle verse of Before the Throne of God Above. Perhaps as you were just, if you were distracted while you were singing or even listening earlier, listen intently to these wonderfully Um, evocative and true lyrics that we sang earlier together when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. And not just to let us now wander, uh, wander around the world as like an acquitted, formally accused defendant, but to look on him and pardon me and welcome me as a good father into the family of God. What a God and what a gospel. Keep reading. 
read the, through the end of chapter two this week. Uh, think through these things together that we've already thought through tonight together in your GC this week. Maybe think through some of these things that are coming up next week. We'll get into the elemental spirits. It's weird stuff. It's good stuff. It's important stuff. It's necessary. It's for our joy. And let's pray that God would give us greater depth and joy, the filling of all life in him. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have set aside our record of debt, not just ignoring it, deciding to not do anything about it and that you would not be just, but that you, in your justice, but in your kindness, in in your love, you have, Lord Jesus, lived for us, died for us, that in you, the fullness of deity, you might fill us with your abundance, with your life. Lord Jesus, help us to know of this life. Fill us with your spirit. Give us greater desire to know you, to love you, to trust you. Uh, Just wake us up and arouse us from indifference. Help us to know you. Help us to trust you. Even in this time of isolation, this time of perhaps greater temptation towards not trusting you, fill us even more, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.